Hey there, everyone. I'm Dan, and welcome to Radio Free Bay Ridge, your hyper-local progressive podcast focusing exclusively on Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. Um, today, we are not in our studio, which has been consistently deconstructed due to COVID. We are actually in the home of Jesse Singer. Thank you so much for inviting us. Thank you for coming over. They have good soda here. Oh, we also have Brian in the room. Hi. How are you? It's been a while. <laughs> Brian, our transportation correspondent. On, on the masthead, and I haven't been on an episode in a couple of years now, so... Yeah, so this is nice you earning your back. <laughs> Don't screw it up. Okay. Let's get right into it, which is, let's just start talking about what the book is. So the book is called There Are No Accidents, The Deadly Rise of Injury and Disaster, Who Profits and Who Pays the Price. And if you were in the room, you had to see it, had to read that because it's a very long title. Um, <laughs> I, I joke, but the book's about something serious, um, which is the current uh, major rise in accidental death in the U.S. And that's not a word I like to use, but it's a word I use quite a few times in the book because it describes this sort of broad category of unintentional injury. And we're seeing serious rises in all these causes of death, uh, traffic crashes and falls, drug poisonings, all these so-called accidents. And in the book, I trace kind of the history of the word and how it's been used for a long time to kind of allow these rises in preventable harm. And the different ways that government negligence and corporate power work together to let people die pretty preventable deaths, you know, because when we're yeah. talking about injury, we're not really talking about COVID or cancer. There's nothing complicated here. Preventing accidental deaths, whether it's an opioid overdose or a traffic crash, is as simple as putting a metaphorical pillow between us and our mistakes. Naloxone, if it were in every home, would prevent every accidental overdose. Automatic emergency braking, if it were in every car, would prevent the vast majority of car crashes. So what we're talking about here is something that's wholly preventable, but something that's rising right now into crisis level proportions because we fail to prevent it. I guess the thing is, is that we've offloaded that responsibility to large government agencies that oftentimes aren't using the expertise that they have, or we're giving it to corporations, which are thinking about profit. And by and large, those government agencies, those regulators are captured by those corporations. Yes. And so we see, you know, um, just a total failure to regulate. I was just reading um, about this, um, the horrible crash caused by an Uber autonomous vehicle in Arizona a few years back. Yeah. They're charging the woman that Uber hired to sit behind the wheel with the, this murder, um, even though Uber had turned off the automatic emergency brakes that were built into the car. So Vol it was a Volvo that they built autonomy in, and they turned off the emergency brakes, which could have prevented this woman's death. Absolutely. And we got to that situation because the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration said, there are no regulations for autonomous vehicles. Do whatever you want. That's terrifying. Terrifying. And, and also doesn't make any sense. And so these vehicles are being tested on roads in almost every state, in public roads. And we are just the guinea pigs. It's not even like the regulators are, they're in bed with the regulators and they're, you know, making the regulations soft. There are no regulations. Just what do you think is the thought process there? Because no matter how I think about it, I can't think of any good reason why we would start out with no regulations to test something like that. Well, I mean, I think the corporations don't want any limits on their capabilities to test or sell anything. And the corporations are in control. I mean, like, since the Reagan era, you know, th these regulatory agencies were created in a beautiful moment of public power and public protest, you know, and in this five or six year period, we got OSHA and the EPA and NHTSA and all these really powerful consumer regulatory agents to protect us from corporations. 
And then the Reagan administration spent eight years defanging and defunding those administrations. And so they had very little power to be able to do their jobs, little staff, little money, and the corporations took advantage of it. And so it became this revolving door, you know, where you lobby for Boeing and Mm -hmm. then you work for Boeing and then you work for the FAA and then you lobby for Boeing and then you work for Boeing. And the classic life cycle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the classic life cycle of a regulator slash lobbyist. (laughs) Love that. Love that for us. And then you see, you know, horrible quote unquote accidents like the Boeing 747 MAX cases, you know, where these, I mean, these monumental and preventable disasters um, that are just a matter of total regulatory failure that the corporations have kind of arranged. Mm -hmm. So a few days ago, you had the book launch party at our local bookshop here at the, uh, the bookmark shop. And there was something that you had brought up during that time uh, and when it was around traffic injuries, traffic fatalities, specifically the moment around Ralph Nader and the, the book that he had published in the 1970s, uh, Unsafe at Any Speed, and how that was a surprise bestseller in your words, and how it really was one of the catalysts for the movement to increase the safety for automobiles, at least for those people that were on the inside of the automobile. And I believe that that was the sort of thing that did help drive down traffic fatalities from a ridiculous, was it something like 60,000 a year to 40,000 a year now, which for some reason we don't really blink at anymore the way that we should. Um, But I, I just wanted to get your sense and just again talk about how that sort of spirit created that moment that you were talking about in the uh, the 70s where you started to see these sort of agencies that would bring about that regulatory environment that really had some teeth to them before the uh, the Reagan years. Yeah, I mean there there were large-scale social justice and environmental protest movements that were around throughout the 60s and the 70s that led to the creation of these agencies. Ralph Nader was really like a billow stoking the flame and you know compiling the evidence so that it wasn't just protesters who were angry, but your average citizen. And you see that too with Rachel Carson's Silent Spring led a similar path to like the creation of the EPA. Those protest movements, they were very potent and they had a lot of potential, you know, but I wonder what it would take to get something similar today. You know, we're seeing, these are all consumer-based regulatory agencies pretty much, especially with NHTSA. They protect people inside cars because those are the people who bought the car. They're the consumer. Mm -hmm. And so right now we're seeing this massive spike in pedestrian fatalities the pedestrians aren't the consumer by and large. I mean, some of the crashes you're seeing are these horrible stories about people running over their children in their driveways. And then at least there's a direct you know, relationship. But on, in city streets, there isn't even that. And so I wonder you know, what it would take to get a similar social justice movement that would push an organization like NHTSA to, to actually do something again. It would really need to be a movement of pedestrians, but does anyone really consider themselves a pedestrian, you know, especially outside New York City? Um, it's not an identity, really. So there was also something else that we talked about at the book launch, and that was in terms of how these sorts of accidental deaths or injuries get talked about in media reports and not necessarily singling out, say, the web or print journalists of New York City, which are doing a pretty good job, in my opinion, but really talking about sort of broadcast local news a lot of times based on police reports. And there was actually a couple of different types of accidental deaths that I thought would be worth bringing up. One would be automobile fatalities. These are typically covered every single time they happen by local news. There's a very stock cookie cutter way that they're reported. This is what happened. This is the make and model of the vehicle that was used. 
we'll report on whether the uh, the person walking was in a crosswalk, if it was a cyclist that had a, a helmet on, things like that. And then they move on. They don't really talk about how this fits into the greater trend of accidents. But then there's also the accidental opioid deaths, particularly from a few years ago. And there was a point where it, news media doesn't really report on individual opioid deaths the way that they report on individual traffic deaths. But when they started rising by a lot, and they started getting attention by Americans of all walks of life, it started to get reported as something that was, hey, here's an alarming trend that we need to do something about that. Don't know if you have any thoughts on the difference between those two types of accidental deaths, who the victims were in those particular scenarios, anything like that. So in this book, I cover like every possible way there is to die by accident in this country. And there are like clear distinctions in like what matters, what matters less, what doesn't matter at all. With the deaths of drug users, you see their deaths are not even news. And I think, you know, people who pay attention to how traffic crashes are reported are often upset that it's not bigger news. Rather, it's more like there's a pile up on Highway 101, leave a little early. It's a matter of traffic rather than a fatality. One thing that's interesting that I was fascinated to see tracks throughout history is that we pay attention to scale. Like when accidents are big, we pay attention. So like there was a horrible fire in the Bronx a few weeks ago, and I think 17 people were killed, and we paid a lot of attention to that. There's a woman in this book, Crystal Eastman. She was a journalist in the turn of the century, traveling to Pittsburgh to report on accidental worker deaths. And she was talking about the fact that we paid a ton of attention when a mine exploded and 300 people died in a day, but that most people didn't die that way. There are fires in this city that kill people every day, and they're all the subject of negligence, negligent landlords, which was going on in the Bronx, you know? But we don't pay attention to those deaths by ones and twos. And when we add up this massive toll of accidental death, which I should mention is um, more than 200,000 people were killed by accident in 2020. Almost all of those were ones and twos. They weren't the Boeing 737 MAX, you know? They, they weren't a massive apartment fire. It's like a trick of our brains. And I, we should obviously pay attention to those large-scale accidents. I'm not saying that we shouldn't, but I do think that we're a little tricked by magnitude. And then we're overwhelmed with how upsetting it is. We need to say, oh, give me something else to pay attention to. And in that, we miss how simply preventable these big accidents and the small everyday ones are, because it's the same prevention sprinklers in every home, self-closing doors that prevent a fire from spreading, you know. I also think that a lot of that is intentional because the people that are at fault, the people like the landlords that are negligent, they don't want us to catch on that they were also negligent in the fires that killed one or two people. You know, if you look at even just the responses of like Facebook comments, the difference between the way that people talk about something like the Bronx fire and the way that people talk about when, you know, one person's home burns down, you go to the comments and someone's like, oh, did they leave the oven on? Did they light a candle and forget and go to sleep, right? Like they're looking for all these reasons to victim blame. People aren't doing that in the Bronx. People in a massive situation, it still happens, but there seems to be a bigger willingness to look at who is at fault there. And what you bring up is a really interesting point because like that is the common ground between every accident in this book. It is this urge to blame human error. And there's two things going on here. There's an urge to blame human error from people like you and me, people in your Facebook comments, who would like to feel better about this. And if they can find a bad guy, someone who did something wrong, then they can say, oh, 
I know they did that wrong. I'd never do that. I know now this won't happen to me. It's a way of saying it won't happen to me. I'm safe. I'm safe. I'm safe. But there are also a huge number of corporate profiteers who are banking on us thinking that way and who have built an entire system. You know, and Crystal Eastman was talking about it in like 1909 in the coal mines of Pittsburgh. But at the same way, Uber was talking about it, blaming this driver who was supposed to monitor the autonomous vehicle. They're the ones pushing for her to be prosecuted for the crash. Our urge to blame a bad guy and find a bad guy, it feeds into the exact same cycle that the only people who could protect us, the only people with the power to prevent all of this, really benefit from. Talking about a company being inoculated from blame, one thing that happened in the neighborhood was the car dealership. I think it's the Barrage Toyota or the Hyundai, where literally a car dealership running someone over and murdering them. I go back to community board again, but the owners came to the board meeting to like offset the blame and say that it wasn't us, it was the valets that we hired, which was an outside agency, and we have disciplined the, the valets, and we are going to put up a sign to tell the valets not to back up. The woman was, I think, just tying her shoe, and they backed into her and killed her, and they literally still couldn't say it was them, and it kind of got forgotten. And let's not forget either that that was not the first problem that this community has ever had with that car dealership or our car dealerships in general from littering the sidewalk with parked cars. So people actually have to walk in the street to walk past that car dealership to dangerous traffic incidents beforehand. Like this is not the first time. So the fact that they were immediately so quick to try to absolve themselves of any fault here is pretty disgusting. And it's how they do business. They cannot change because they need that rolling stock of sellable cars in an urban environment that shouldn't have it. So they're going to park on the street. No matter what any politician has done, what activism has done, they're just going to keep doing it because that is the business model. That's what makes money. Well, and it's the premise of the business, right? Like if you try and take all the blame off the table, right? Like the base premise of the business is a dangerous condition. And this is a distinction I try and draw in the book between human error, which is what we've been talking about, kind of like this thing we want to blame for accidents, and dangerous conditions, which is something we live with all the time. And they're layered around us, different depending on who we are and where we live. And, you know, having a large vehicle dealership in a dense, pedestrian-dense urban environment is a dangerous condition. Having that business also be negligent is another dangerous condition. These conditions stack up until the worst occurs, you know, until the obvious and expected happens. One of the things that I noticed during COVID is I went in and I looked at who got loans um, from the COVID emergency assistance, what businesses, and it's usually it was for restaurants, where some restaurants were trying to struggle to get 10,000. The number one recipient were Bay Ridge car dealerships. They got over a million dollars. I don't know if it was fraud, straight up fraud, but they were claiming over 100 workers, 100 to 200 workers no on way. their COVID loan what? forms. It is all public data. I mean, we'll post some of that in the show notes, but they were claiming hundreds of workers. And on one level, I'm like, there can't be more than 20 in that dealership. But then I'm also thinking, all right, the valet companies, but also they spread out their stock because they're not suited to an urban environment. So the Century 21 parking lot, 
almost 70% of that lot space is actually for dealerships to store extra cars. And a lot of the other like random lots in the neighborhood are literally just spots where the car dealerships sit cars. And I think we can all agree there's no better use for that space. And that's perfectly (laughs) fine and good. And I'm so glad that happens. Another part of it is also for the valley parking for restaurants. They will use the Century 21 parking garage as well. But it's all spread out. It's like decentralized through the neighborhood. So, of course, they're going to be driving cars over the sidewalks everywhere because they can't keep them in a centralized location. It's part of the business model. You said something about valet parking, and I have a question for the group that I've been wanting to (laughs) get sorted out since I moved to Bay Ridge. What's with valet parking in Bay Ridge? I have a theory. (laughs) First of all, there's so much of it. Yeah. Second of all, there's this thing that happens where there's no, there is no valet parking. They just leave your car in the street. It's literally like it's it's, it's car babysitting for, for tickets. (laughs) Yeah. My whole theory is that there are a lot of people in Bay Ridge who live their life trying to look fancy. Because you're right. You're not getting a good parking space. Your car is frequently not in a a convenient location. It's not safe for anyone. You're paying for valet parking for someone to go double park your car in the middle of the street. I really think people just want to go to a place that is deemed fancy. And because it's fancy, air quotes, there is valet parking. I really think it's just rich people doing rich people things. Oh, man. I also want to know how much it costs. Can <laughs> we rent a car to find out? Because I'm just really so should. curious. We should actually just like try to do valet parking at one each of all the restaurants the, or and like, put a tracking thing in the car and see where they end up. The first place <laughs> I thought of, mm, I don't know, actually. <laughs> I, I was about to say, maybe I don't want to get into that. I'll, I'll do it this way because I don't want to once again be claimed that I hate Bay Ridge businesses. <laughs> Um, the first place I thought of was a fancy Italian restaurant. Which could be any of which them. Which could so be anywhere. So you don't are not come being for specific. me, <laughs> A fancy Italian restaurant with outdoor dining that is um, in the like upper 90s or 100 something. You just cut it in half, but it's not more. It's you not, know, still not specific. And um, they park it on the other side of the outdoor dining. So it's like the outdoor dining structure is like already taking up space in the street and then they double park cars directly behind the outdoor dining structure and when you eat there you watch people in the street have to drive around what is essentially three rows of parked cars and so when you're a pedestrian at that exact place you have to walk on the sidewalk between people eating or you have to walk into the street around what is essentially three rows taken up by cars and outdoor dining. Do you think it's just like paid blame offset where like they see their car double parked across the street? They could have done that themselves. It's laziness. It's just laziness. They are paying someone to make that decision for them so that if something bad happens, it's not their fault. Oh, but wow. you did say we're going, we're investigating this as a field trip, right? We're getting lots of we're food. We're going to get okay. some Italian food is what I heard. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is exactly what I heard. Yeah. I love the concept of paid blame offset. Well, that was what was You're- happening with the valets too at the cars dealership. They're like, we hire these contractors and therefore we can put the blame on them. They can't do anything about it because they need our contract. I was in an accident, not a car accident. There was horseback riding, actually. I almost died. It was a very big deal. And I was not going to sue or get any lawyers or anything involved, but a lot of them reached out to me, as they do. And so I thought, all right, let me at least just go see what my options are, because I had hospital bills. And there was very clear negligence. This was like 
Sounds ridiculous, but it was classified as a mass horse accident. There were five of us riding and three of us were thrown. So I met with the attorney and what he said to me, I will never forget. It was so mean. This was only a few days after my accident. He said, well, didn't you know when you got on the horse that you could get hurt? And I was like, yes. And he was like, no one cares about rich people problems. And I was like, I paid a, I bought a $20 Groupon to be <laughs> on this horse, number one. Um, number two, it was just, it really stuck with me because it was like that comment and that mindset implies almost that no human being should ever leave their home because if you ever do anything, people are going to think, well, didn't you know you could get hurt doing that? So basically we don't care, right? And that's such a dangerous mindset to have because you have the right as a person, to have hobbies and to leave your home and expect people that should be responsible for things to keep you safe. And this man was just convinced that it was my fault because I got on a horse, even though I had gone to a stable that should have kept me safe. Jesse, your book is trending or one of the top sellers on Amazon and risk management. Is that right? Yeah. And I know you have particular opinions on who exactly should be managing the risk in this situation because it's not people like Ember who are supposed to be making a personal choice as to whether they get on that horse or not, the blame and responsibility gets pushed down to the people that have the least control over their situation. Yeah, I would actually like to stay out of horse territory because most of the ways, 99.9% of the ways we die by accident are within the built environment, you know, on our roads, in our workplaces and in our homes. You know, a horse is a potentially uncontrollable factor. Um, but but the vast majority of the risks we face are in these built environments that are out of our control. And whether that's because we don't own our home, we're a renter, and therefore we can't control safety in our home, or it's something like gun manufacture, which is an unregulated and illegal to regulate area of consumerism. It's the only one. Guns cannot be regulated. And so there's this gun that I talk about in the book, the Sig Sauer P320, which when you drop it, it shoots a bullet at random. Oh. And that's legal. Love that. Because you can't recall guns. There would be far fewer plot points in sitcoms if guns didn't do that, so. There you go. <laughs> so all worth it, really. Accidents are actually very narratively important, I have found. I went through a period, there's a lot of dark and sad stories in the book, and I was having a hard time with it, and so, but I wanted to like stay on task. And so you'll see over there on my bookshelf, there's like a whole section of fiction that centers around accidents. Like I was like, oh, I got to stay on mode, so I, sh I should read these. And accidents are really a plot point in a lot of fiction. And it's because they're random, they're unpreventable. I don't really need to write that much. Theoretically you know? unpreventable, theoretically random, but exactly. they're totally not random because you found that they're statistically, you can absolutely point where they're going to be happening. Even if you were to look in our neighborhood, the Vision Zero maps of our neighborhood, yeah. you know, you don't look at Third Avenue and say, oh, there's a dot on every corner where someone has been hit by a car. No, 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 no. There's five corners with 10 dots on. Yes. Those streets are the widest. Those streets are the worst designed. And so there's these patterns in almost every place. If we're willing to look and kind of move beyond what this lawyer was telling you, Ember, of like, what, you left the house? You walked across a street? Didn't you know you were at risk? I um, can imagine someone being like, oh, you crossed 86th and 5th? Didn't you know that there were 10 deaths there on the vision? It's there on the public vision zero map. You should have known that that's a dangerous intersection. It's just a way of having a conversation about human error instead of having a conversation about prevention. And that crash, which happened last week, which killed a senior citizen who was using a walker crossing mm. Atlantic Avenue, it really stuck with me. Um, I think part of the reason is I spend a lot of time thinking about how older people 
are surviving right now because one of the yeah. fastest rising causes of accidental death is falls. And, you know, we have an aging yeah. population and more and more people are falling, which, you know, happens, but they're not surviving their falls. They're struggling with their health care. But also, if you look at our built environment in general and like ADA accessibility, because a lot of what ADA accessibility is, is also accessibility for older folks. It's ramps, not stairs. It's grab bars and banisters on everything. It's just non-existent by and large. Mm -hmm. um, and it's such a simple way to intervene for these people. One thing that I always wanted to do, and I'm just incredibly OCD about this, but just like document properly where the curb cuts are in this neighborhood, because some of them are absolutely non-existent or terrible if you're in a wheelchair or something like that, or if you need assistance. On top of that, I think about a year ago, we had an episode where we were talking about a Bay Ridge emergency center that was going to be opened at the old Victory Memorial Hospital site. And that it was really just a front ER that would be there to kind of operate as a triage center. But then if you had anything serious, they would have to ship you to Myomides because there was no actual hospital behind the emergency center. And this is a brand new concept that they're trying out the medical industry because a lot of hospital ERs are getting overwhelmed because they are consolidating so much and they have closed local hospitals that they now want to offload ER visits to these other triage centers where they can filter away some of the things that would otherwise overwhelm them. And Bay Ridge has mostly falls and, and cardiac things, but there's no cardiac unit behind this. They're not thinking about how to save as many Bay Ridge lives as possible. They're thinking about how to offset a problem that they have at their business, the hospital is a business, over there. You will actually have a delayed response if the ambulance is taking you to the Victory Memorial site, and then they realize they cannot help you there, and then the ambulance will re-divert to go to the other hospital, um, and it will actually delay care. It's happening all the time in Bay Ridge, especially with our senior population. We are a NORC, a naturally occurring retirement community. It's a reproduction of a problem that's going on throughout this country, and like often we don't think about triage as a problem in urban centers, because there's lots of hospitals and you can get to them pretty quickly. But the same thing that's happening there is happening in rural places all over where Hospitals are shutting down, and then your transit time to the hospital is an hour, an hour and a half, two hours. You need a helicopter long. We can't drive it. And so when we're talking about, not about disease, but about accidental death and injury, we're talking about things where seconds count. With overdoses, seconds literally count. But also if you've been a crash, if you're bleeding, I mean, injury-related death is the sort of thing you need to respond to with incredible quickness. And these hospitals are shutting down because they're not able to turn enough of a profit. And then more and more people have to go to the other area hospitals and they become overwhelmed. This is the byproduct of not having centralized Medicare system that we all have access to. That also happened to me. Same accident. I was on the ground for an hour before I could get in an ambulance because the woman that fell next to me was unconscious. And so they had to put her in an ambulance first. So I just laid there bleeding on the ground for an hour. Oh, my God. Is this, and this is in Ohio? No, this was in Washington, D.C. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. And the problem was that when we were riding, they have like a very clear trail that you're supposed to ride and just have like a normal experience on a horse, which is not what I had. <laughs> um, but instead, the Parks Department had decided to street sweep through the trails. And so it was the street sweepers that were asked to move because they were told, if you come this way, you're going to scare the horses. They said no. And then they scared all the horses. Oh, And whoa. so that was... That Whoa. is why I bring this up now, because it was actually not like, a oh, my horse got spooked by a bird, right? It was like 
someone was told, don't do this or people will be harmed. And they were like, nah, we're going to go ahead and do that. And then guess what? Three of us went to the hospital. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's not a problem of wild horses. And so now knowing all of that, the lawyer was like, didn't you know that when you get on a horse, you'll get hurt? And I was like, yeah, but maybe not like this. Right. Oh, my God. Yeah. He was blaming the horse. Correct. That, See, yeah. It's the same thing. Exactly. Yes. Uh, yes. I kind of fell for it. I blamed the horse. Exactly. <laughs> and I let that happen because I wanted this to happen in real time where it's like <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> the, the interesting experience. I learned a lot through that, actually. But um, the interesting thing about that is that when people hear the word accident, I think that we're prone in this country to assume it's a car accident. Which, number one, I think is very telling about how many car accidents we have in this country, right? Um, Number two, there are like certain acceptable canned responses to say to someone you find out when they are in a car accident, right? That's so normal that people like kind of know what to say to you if that happens to you. When you say something weird like, yes, I was in a horse accident and I went to the hospital for 10 hours, people are like, why? Why were you on a horse, right? Like I've never been blamed for something more in my life than I was this experience. That had nothing to do with my choices. It was real. And I'm not saying that so you feel bad for me. It's just that everything that you've said here and at the book launch really resonates with me because it's astonishing how far people will go to make an accident anyone's fault, but who is actually at fault. And also to wrap back to the narrative importance of quote unquote accidents, we're dodging also around the one local narrative accident that ousted a state senator that was opposed to all of these safety measures that were trying to change behavior in that Marty Golden struck and killed a woman. And everyone reported at the time it was an accident. He went to the newspapers at the time that it happened. It's like, I'm so contrite. They literally printed that he was at her bedside in the hospital. I'm so sorry that this happened to you. And it's like, well, you do know that this senator sped all over the damn place. This is systemic. (laughs) And everybody knew about that, too. Yeah. Like, this was a known thing about him. I have spoken to people who were his staffers that were like, yeah, he would cut through parks. Before Max Rose put guardrails on the Belt Parkway, Marty Golden, in order to rush to the other side of his gerrymander district at the time, would just go up onto the grass on the Shore Road Promenade and speed past the traffic. He would cut through Marine Park, literally through the park, and then get back on the road on the other side. Like, staffers have told this to me. Yeah, that's what he did. So, like, when he almost hit that cyclist, it's all systemic. (laughs) (laughs) Notably, and pretended to be a police officer. Yes. One of my local claims to fame is that I, too, was almost also hit by Marty Golden the day after the election in which Marty Golden lost. (gasps) Um, I was walking down 3rd Avenue with my boyfriend at the time. I was walking on 3rd. He came from whatever street that was that I was crossing, ran the stop sign. And so I'm in the intersection and backed up and we made eye contact. Still to this day, I have no idea if he like knew who I was or if this eye contact just felt personal because I was irritated. (laughs) But I shit you not, bleep, (laughs) he flashed me the peace sign and then (laughs) continued on his way. And I was, (gasps) my mouth was just agape. And I remember looking at the guy I was dating being like, do you know who that is? And I, I, it just blew my mind. So this man has not learned from anything is the moral of that story. (laughs) 
No, I don't think he's learned from anything. It was one of my first Bay Ridge memories. The IDC, do listeners know about the IDC? So the Independent Democratic Caucus, I think it is. Breakaway group of Democrats that when the Democrats ostensibly had won Albany, they caucused with the Republicans. And this was done at Andrew Cuomo's bidding so that he could still have control to decide what moved forward and what didn't in Mm -hmm. a Democratic Albany. And it shows now that he definitely needed that because he was gone. (laughs) Yes. Within, what, one or two election cycles after the IDC was gone. As he should be. We live in an unfortunate state in New York City where we don't have control over some elements of our street. Albany controls them. And so one Mm -hmm. of those things is our automated enforcement programs. Another thing is the speed limit. And we're really hoping to actually change that this session. So uh, maybe we'll be able to follow up on this episode and say that we have won what's called home rule for traffic safety in New York City, which would mean that we could decide when our speed cameras turn on and off and not need to do something that we currently need to do now, which is go every four years and beg Albany to renew the camera programs. And so we were in this situation, I guess, four years ago where we had needed the camera program renewed. But the IDC was still in power. And the IDC, assumedly at Cuomo's bidding, had decided that they were not going to let this renewal bill pass. And this is a renewal bill. It's pretty simple. There was a pilot program. It was very successful. You just renew the bill. It's very run-of-the-mill politics. But they had held it up until the session ended. And so what was going to happen was all the speed cameras in New York City were about to be turned off. And automated enforcement is very effective in New York City. In general, my two cents is that punitive measures are never the best way to go. Mm. You know, we should be redesigning our streets so that people drive slowly, which isn't that complicated, um, rather than just ticketing them. But we know police enforcement doesn't work and automated enforcement does. So as a stopgap, it does exist. Anyway, so these cameras were going to be turned off and everyone was terrified because we knew they had caused massive drops in speeding and we were going to see huge increases. And so I work with a group called Families for Safe Streets, which are people who've lost loved ones to traffic crashes. And um, Mm. they were responsible for getting the first speed cameras introduced in New York City, and they were incensed that the cameras were being turned off. And so we were organizing with them to shine a light on the legislators who were absolutely standing in the way. And the king of standing in the way of speed cameras Mm. was Marty Golden, as we know, a consummate speeder. Shocker. (laughs) The situation had gotten so extreme, the cameras were about to be turned off, that we were doing direct action. So these members of Families for Safe Streets had decided they wanted to get arrested. And so they were going to go and block the street outside Marty Golden's office to draw attention to the fact that he was about to be responsible for the deaths of who knows how many people. And of course, we didn't want these mothers who had lost children to get arrested alone. And so I went with them. So I came down to Bay Ridge. You know, I'd had family nearby. I'd been here. But my first real introduction was standing in the middle of the street, holding the hands of these incredibly brave women until the police arrested us. <laughs> so Brad Lander also came to get arrested with us. Then city council member Brad Lander, because he knew his presence there would draw more attention um. and also further protect, you know, like the cops couldn't mess around if there was a city council member right there. Brad's a real one. Yeah, he really is. Mm-hmm. So we were all arrested. And I remember sitting in the back of the paddy wagon, you know, and the cops had had a lot of snide remarks and jokes, but everyone was wearing signs about their loved one that had been killed. And they had taken the signs off us before they got us in the back of the paddy wagon. And I watched this officer going through the signs as she was sitting there and like looking up, clearly trying to match the sign with the people. And I remember thinking like, oh, are you paying attention now? Do you get it now? This is real. 
And so then we went and the jail cell in this Bay Ridge precinct was maybe five by eight. It was the size of a bathroom. Mm-hmm. We were all women. And so they put us all together and they couldn't put Brad Lander in the cell. And so they literally handcuffed him to the wall. Can you imagine just a city council member just handcuffed oh to a wall for a few hours? But then they put us all in the cell and there was a woman already in there who had been sleeping on the bench. And she kind of got up and one of the women I was arrested with, Debbie Kahn, kind of jokingly goes to her, you know, like, what are you in for? And she says, DUI. And like, oh, it wow. was just dead quiet. You know, she didn't think twice about it. Sure. Yeah. And, and, um, and one of the women sits down next to her and said something like, well, we're here because someone like you killed our children. Wow. And then we were all locked in a very small room for multiple hours. I don't even know what to say. That really gave me goosebumps. I really hope that that moment was a learning moment for that woman. But that's not something we can replicate large scale. You know, you can't make that happen for every single person that drives under the influence. Amber, I love that you bring that up because there's a concept I talk about in the book and it's really important to me. And y'all have to read the book and see how I got here. But this story starts for me with my best friend being killed by a drunk driver. That driver, you know, in court when he went to prison, which is very rare to go to prison when you kill someone with your car unless you're drunk in New York City. Um, and he said he referred to it as this accident that happened, like he wasn't even there. And I remember that struck me at the time. At the time, it felt really important. Like he was this bad guy who was like unaccountable. But as I researched this book, I would learn about this concept that epidemiologists were putting forth in like the 1950s and 1960s for NHTSA, for the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. She referred to it as her most controversial stance, which is that we should make the world safe for drunks. Because if we make the world safe for drunks, we make it safe for the sleepy heads and the people who are paying attention to their kids in the back seat. We make it safe for people who screw up. And we can do that. We can build roads that can be navigated by a drunk person. In fact, technology exists that won't let your car start if it can smell alcohol. Wow. So we can systematize this so that we don't need to trap every drunk driver in a small room with a number of angry morning uh, mothers. (laughs) That's so smart because people are going to drive drunk, period. We are not going to end drunk driving. Well, Not quickly, And anyway. it's such a good example, right? Because we, we think of drunk drivers as bad. Yeah. But what about people who make mistakes? What about people who are sleepy? We, we, we've started to villainize lately distracted drivers. In this era where everything is so distracting, we are going to make mistakes. We simply need to build the built environment in a way that can protect us. And we can do it. The technology exists. It's not even complicated. So what's stopping it then? I'm thinking in terms of the fact that there are all sorts of things in cars right now that are adding to the expense of the vehicle. You can get the, uh, the extra $100 package, the infotainment package, and all these little bells and whistles that bloat the cost of a car up to $20,000, $30,000 or more. So what's stopping the installation of the things that would actually save lives? There's two things going on here. On the federal level, there's a regulatory failure. We do not have regulatory agencies that function at all. They are not holding automobile manufacturers, for example, to the responsibility to protect us. But we also have a failure of the social safety net. As the social safety net was dismantled, as income inequality increases, we get into the situation where rich people can buy the safest car. You can buy a car with automatic emergency braking, but it costs $10,000 because the regulators aren't requiring the automakers to pay that cost. They're externalizing it to us. And most Mm -hmm. people can't afford that. 
these systems exist for every area of accidental death, you know, like requiring naloxone to be distributed with every opioid prescription, sending it to every home, making it free, making it accessible, you know, like that would arrest the overdose crisis, but it's the same idea of giving people what they need to protect themselves. But I do think there is a local problem too, you know, and it's the same thing that makes us so mad about drunk driving, but not actually having a conversation about preventing drunk driving, just about punishing drunk drivers. And when it comes down to it, it's really hard to change human behavior. It's really hard to punish our way out of a problem. Think about all the people who've already given up on their New Year's resolutions. And those are behaviors that they want to change. You know, we're talking about changing behaviors that people have ingrained, that they're relied on, that might be an addiction, when we could just protect them. One of our past episodes, me and Brian, How to Make Safe Streets in Bay Ridge, we go over all of the existing physical changes we can make to our streets from roundabouts to we're just now getting our first singular raised crosswalk in Bay Ridge after six years of quote unquote testing from the city DOT as a pilot program. And these are very basic things that we could be doing. And I did want to get before we wrap up kind of also where your book talk at the bookmark shop wrapped up too, which is that person that came in from the DOT which was so shocking. Ember, do you want to? Yes. Oh, yes. So I was um, listening very intently to the book launch because I was also live tweeting it. Um, so you can refer to that thread that we'll put in the show notes as well. But yes, someone, after a bunch of questions from people in the room and questions from Senator Andrew Gernardis, someone spoke up and they started by saying, I'm a Department of Transportation employee. And there was this moment, Jesse, I don't know if you felt it, but right after they said that, there was kind of what felt like a collective inhale in the room where everyone got a little nervous. I might have felt that more in the audience, but I think people didn't know what was about to happen. <laughs> but she said, I'm an employee for the Department of Transportation, and I know that a lot of you in this room are activists, and I would love to say that what makes changes is activism. But working there, I can tell you that the biggest thing that makes changes is lawsuits. And she suggested that Perhaps in situations where the Department of Transportation is aware of something that could specifically make it safer on streets, like something like if people have said, hey, we want, I don't know, a raised crosswalk in this area and the Department of Transportation or whoever is like, no, we're not going to do that. And then someone dies or is injured there in those cases, perhaps we should be suing the Department of Transportation. And it was really a moment at the book launch where I think I felt people start thinking about this differently. Yeah, sue the bastards. Sue the government, sue the corporations. It is not the ideal way to do things because it's predicated on something horrible happening first. Right. Like I, that's what tort sets up for us, that something horrible has to happen and then we can, we can seek change from it. But it's one of the very few actions that we have left. I'm not exactly sure how this works. I'm not a lawyer, so I can't speak to it, but I believe there should be some sort of mechanism for putting city agencies, quote, on notice. And that has a sort of legal effect of warning them that if something horrible in the future does happen, then it does make the city government liable without having to wait for the actual horrible thing to happen. There's an exciting case right now in Arizona. I'm really excited about it because we were talking about how rich people can protect themselves. Like you can spend $10,000 and you get the automatic emergency braking. The Arizona Supreme Court just last week announced that they would allow a court case to go forward wherein, I believe it was Ford, sold a model of their car and you could pay $10,000 for the automatic emergency braking or not. And someone didn't pay for it. They got into a crash and they killed someone in another car. And 
the Arizona Supreme Court is going to allow a case to go forward wherein the family of those killed in this crash that could have been prevented by automatic emergency braking to sue Ford for not installing the technology on every car. What we're really talking about here is who's responsible for protecting us, right? And so that puts the onus of protection back on the corporations, back on the car companies, which is even better than it being on the government because we all pay for it if we have to redesign our roads. But if the car companies simply have to build safe machines, which they are perfectly capable of doing, you can build a crash-proof car. We've been doing it since the 1960s, just only in tests. If we are actually going to have legal power to hold them to that responsibility, then we might actually be able to take some steps forward to protecting people. It's going to be an uphill battle with lawsuits, even though it is probably the most effective form of making this change at this point. But I mean, the thing that never got reported about Marty Golden killing that woman was that the lawyer for the woman for the estate ended up settling with Marty for around a million dollars. It turns out, and I'm not naming the lawyer or anything like that, but in the midst of the lawsuit, I believe, or within a year after, the lawyer that represented the woman that Marty killed, he ran for office. He ran for office in what eventually became Nicole Maliotakis's seat, um, is now currently represented by Michael Tenusis, an assembly seat representing Bay Ridge. And that lawyer got donations and money from Marty Golden, possibly during or while this trial was occurring. The man who killed this woman, Marty Golden, was paying or paid after the lawyer who represented her estate to get her settlement and what she deserved from that crash. And the courts are going to be a hard place to win in this regard, because we already have seen on a very hyper-local level that things are stacked against us. Yeah, you know who doesn't have a job anymore, though? Yeah. Marty Golden. (laughs) We've made progress. We have made progress. That hopeful little bit is where I think we can end it. Jesse, thank you so much for talking with us. This was really cool. (laughs) It was my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. And everyone, please go out and get the book. Get it at your local bookshop if you can. We'll be putting links in the show notes. There are no accidents. The deadly rise of injury and disaster. Who profits and who pays the price? Follow the podcast. Follow us on Twitter. Check us out on Facebook. Go to our website, RadioFreeBayRidge.org, where we'll be having show notes. I will share as much background info. I love doing background research on everything we say on the show. And until next time, everyone, stay Stay free, free, Bay Ridge. Ridge.